I too offer a good morning to all of you. My name's Dan Bowers, and I have the privilege of reading the text for the message this morning, so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Tracy and I have been members here at this church for over 28 years now, and what a blessing it has been to us and to our family. And um, I remember shortly after we came here, hearing that these verses that we're reading this morning were a key, uh, was a key text in the formation of this church almost 29 years ago. And I know that there have been many changes in this church over the years, but very thankful and grateful that we as a church are still looking at these verses and wanting to grow to be more like the first church here in Acts chapter 2. So follow along as I read these verses, familiar verses, from Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Join me in prayer, would you? Father, I thank you for these verses. Uh, your word, like yourself, uh, is timeless and does not change. And Father, I thank you for ways in which we, as your children, both individually and as a church, have grown in these areas that we just read. But Father, I pray that we would desire to grow even more. Father, that we as a church and we individually would be devoted to the teaching of your word and to the fellowship, that we would be devoted to being reminded of your death, burial, and resurrection, and that we would be devoted to praying for one another. Father, would you help us to grow in these areas? Father, we will need your spirit to do that. Would you help us do that even this week? Father, I pray for Larry now as he comes to bring this word to us. Father, I pray that you would bless and give fruitfulness to his study of this this past week and to praying for this body. And Father, I pray for us individually that we will have ears to hear, that uh, our hearts and minds would be free from distractions, those things that are of less importance, and that we would be in awe of what we see in your word this day. And Father, as we grow in these areas, Father, we ask that you also would add to our numbers those who are being saved. And Father, would you do that for your glory this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a, there was a video circulating this past week that caught my eye. It was of the uh, quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens, Lamar Jackson. Um, he, I'm a sucker for these kinds of videos and stories. Uh, maybe you are too. He, he was surprising 
a young fan of his named Landon who suffers from a heart condition and I guess the parents were able to arrange for this meeting to happen uh, when the, the Ravens were playing in New Orleans. I, maybe that was just this past week, I think. And uh, you, you see in this video where they're in this, I don't know if it's in the hotel or something, but, but Landon is in this room with his Lamar Jackson jersey on and he doesn't know what's happening. And then this door opens and Lamar Jackson comes walking into the room. And this boy, I don't know, maybe he's about 10 years old, he just begins, he just runs to Lamar Jackson. He gives him this big bear hug. He doesn't let go for like 30 or 40 seconds. He's just hugging Lamar Jackson. And the parents are like talking, to, you can hear them in the background that he didn't know, this is amazing. And he's wiping away tears and Lamar Jackson's trying to like wipe the tears away because he's so ecstatic to be uh, in the presence of his, his hero. And uh, again, I, I, don't, I, I, I do love those stories uh, when I come across them. There's something stirring about uh, seeing someone who is a, a great person, a famous person, who draws near to someone who is, is weak, someone who really has no claim, per se, to be in the presence of this great person. When, when greatness condescends and draws near to the the lowly, that's something that I find moving. And as I saw this, it was just a 45-second clip or so that, I, that was on the, the website, but uh, when I saw it this particular week, especially given the study that I was doing for this morning, uh, I, I immediately had this desire in my heart. I, I wish that I was as excited to draw near to the Lord in prayer as Landon was to run into the arms of his sports hero, Lamar Jackson. Uh, Undoubtedly, among the highest privileges that our Lord Jesus uh, shared with us is the privilege of unhindered direct access to the throne of God in prayer. We can, we can get excited about a 25-year-old man who is really fast and really good at throwing a football, uh, you know, coming into the presence of a little child. That's all well and, and good. But, but what of the opportunity, what of the privilege, as we just sang about it, given to us in that the one and only God the self-existent God who no one made, who was before everything and everyone else, who alone is everywhere possessing all authority and power. How's this for greatness? Almighty God, the Lord Most High, the Sovereign King, the Ancient of Days, avenging and awesome, blessed and compassionate, gracious and eternal, faithful and holy, creator and forgiver, the God of comfort and glory, the God of heaven and earth, the God of justice and love, the God of peace and truth, that this God should invite us to come to him, that he would give us of his own spirit, that we might run to him and bring our needs to him. How moving is that? 
And it's really all the more moving when we remember that our condition was not nearly as likely to be treated compassionately as this young child with a, with a heart condition. And it's important that we understand this when we think about the subject of prayer, that prayer is not something that is simply a right of ours, that if God is out there and if he exists and he is aware of us humans, that it's just his obligation, it's just his duty to give ear to our prayers. We should be disabused of that attitude with regard to prayer because God is not obligated to hear the prayers of his enemies. It even says that in God's word in in Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Approaching God at will and his being welcoming toward us, his hearing us and his being committed to helping us is not something that any of us deserve. We cannot just draw near to God and expect a warm welcome because we have sinned against him. In our sin, we declare that we think life without God is actually better than life with him. And so that indictment of Isaiah 59.2 is true for all of us. Or as it says in another passage of scripture in Proverbs 28 verse 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If we want to just go our own way, do our own thing in disregard of the holy God who made us and his law, if we would call out to him, God's word says it's actually an abomination. And that's what all of us have done. We have turned away from him and his law to do our own thing. But the good news that we've gathered to celebrate this morning is that Jesus Christ saves sinners and he reconciles people to God. He, the Lord Jesus, is the one mediator between God and man who bridged the gap that exists, who, that separation that exists between us and God. Jesus healed that separation by absorbing in his own body the curse and the punishment from God that our sin deserves, so that we who were far off, we who were his enemies, who were strangers and aliens from his good and almighty throne, might again be brought near to God as dearly loved children. That is the astonishing grace that he has shown to us in the Lord Jesus. And if you, if you are with us today, and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ it's this message that you are really here to hear. You're here to hear. That was not in my notes. That sounded a little bit awkward, but you know what I mean. The prayer that the Lord would be calling you to pray because your, your sin, your iniquity, your rebellion, you're choosing to go your own way, that has created that separation so that he will not hear your prayers. Well, what are you supposed to do then? Well, there is a prayer that he will hear. It's recorded in, uh, well, in several places of scripture, but I'm thinking particularly of one sinner where Jesus told a parable and a person cried out in prayer, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
That's a good prayer that God will hear. And if you are knowing yourself to be one who is separated from God because of your sin, we invite and urge you to pray, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you recognize yourself as a sinner, we are here this morning because we believe that through Jesus Christ, God saves sinners. Call out to him today and ask him to save you. Now, for all who do that, for all who repent, who turn from sin, and who believe upon the Lord, uh, God grants them his own spirit, the spirit of adoption, by whom we might call upon God as our loving Heavenly Father, confident that he will hear us and do what is good and give what is good and withhold nothing good from those who are upright before him through Jesus, and that he will work all things together for good for his beloved children. That wonderful news, that gospel, that good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, that landed powerfully on the crowd that had gathered to hear the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost that is recorded earlier in Acts chapter 2. And what we're told in Acts chapter 2, before the passage that Dan read for us, is that the people there, they were cut to the heart and they longed to be forgiven and to be reconciled to God. And so Peter called them to repent, to believe, and they were baptized and they were added to the number and we're told that they began devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we've just been thinking about those different commitments over the past few Sundays. Together, the saints were committed to, to gathering together, to hearing God's word, to reminding each other of the gospel as they ate and drank in remembrance of him, sharing, as we'll see in the weeks to come, sharing their goods and their possessions with each other, and they were calling out to him in prayer. They were crying out to him. They were devoted to the prayers. And that's the focus of our attention this morning. This is a commitment that marks the people of God, both then and now. They are, we are, devoted to the prayers. So what I want to do this morning is I, I want to observe the early church's devotion to prayer. I just want you to see in the wider context of the book of Acts, the church's devotion to prayer. I want us to consider why they were so devoted to prayer, and then I'd like to encourage and exhort us to be freshly devoted to prayer together. So let's note first the, the church's devotion to prayer. Uh, we're told that it was so in Acts 2.42. They were devoted to the prayers. But the whole book of Acts confirms and illustrates that statement. Just think about it this way. This is the way that I like to think about it, and I've, I've commended this to you, I think, at different points over the years, but this is a helpful way for me to think about what the Lord has done among us. How did we get here? Like, how is it that this gathering, celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ, like, how is it that it's come to even exist? How did we get from that small band? We're at the book of Acts, in chapter 1, it says there were 120 disciples they were kind of confused. They were fearful. They didn't really understand. They were just waiting, right? Jesus had told them to wait, and they were there huddled in an upper room, we're told, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Just 120, less, less disciples after, after Jesus had 
defeated sin, risen from the grave, ascended to heaven, there were less of them than there are gathered in this room right now. And, and today, the Lord Jesus is worshipped as King of kings and Lord of lords by millions of millions of people around the world today. How did we get there? How did that happen? And there are multiple layers to, uh, to that answer. But if we just followed the book of Acts closely in search of an answer to that question, how do we get here? I have no doubt that a part of the answer and a big part of the answer would be it happened through prayer. The risen Christ had told this small group of his followers that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. So what did they do? They waited. And they waited prayerfully. Look, go back if your Bible's open. Look at Acts 1.14. And these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So there they were, just waiting for the Spirit, waiting for this promise, and devoting themselves to prayer. They realized they needed to find a replacement for Judas. This is, the, this is later in chapter 1. And when two men were put forward, what did they do? They prayed, Acts 1.24. And from there, we see that the spread of the gospel and the multiplication of the word of God that is detailed in the book of Acts is the record of answered prayer. So we have this statement in verse 42 that they were devoted to the prayers. And then immediately after this wonderful picture we have in, at the end of Acts chapter 2, the next big movement in the book of Acts begins with the apostles' devotion to prayer. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They were devoted to the prayers. And we see great evangelistic fruit born then, but great opposition as well. And in the midst of opposition and persecution, we see at the end of chapter 4, uh, Peter and the other apostles, they are threatened. They are released from jail. What do they do? They go find their friends, and they pray that God would help them to be bold and to carry on their witness. And that's what the Lord does. He strengthens them. There's an earthquake, and they are emboldened to continue bearing witness. And that may be why when a ministry crisis hits in chapter 6, when there's an administrative need and, there, and the widows are being neglected in the distribution of food, the apostles say, hey, this is an important thing, but there's no way we could possibly pray less to tend to this need. So appoint some people, find some spirit-filled people in the congregation to help tend to this administrative need. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they find some servants to tend to this need. And what do they do with those servants when they are selected? They commission them with prayer. And then in chapter 7, we see one of those servants, uh, Stephen. He is stoned to death as he bears witness to Jesus. And as he's being stoned to death, we see him call out to the Lord. We see him praying that God would forgive those who are stoning him. And I think we can understand the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who was there and present at that particular point. I think we could understand the conversion of Saul as an answer to Stephen's prayer for his enemies. God is answering prayer. But before we get to the conversion of Saul, we see the gospel go to uh, Samaria. And when, when does the Holy Spirit fall upon these new believers in Samaria? As Peter and John were praying for them, chapter 8, verse 15. Then we do see Saul 
encounter the risen Lord Jesus on his way to persecute Christians. And the, the fruit of his encounter with the resurrected Jesus is that he begins to pray as he's waiting for Ananias to come and lay hands on him. And when he recounts that whole situation later in the book of Acts, he says that the Spirit directed him to get out of Jerusalem as he was praying. We see at the end of chapter 9, Peter heals a woman named Tabitha by praying. When we see the gospel go to the gent, are you, get it? Do you under- are you getting the picture? I know I'm running through a lot. I'm just trying to tell you that the church prayed a lot. The gospel begins to spread to the Gentiles through the household of a man named Cornelius. And what does the angel tell Cornelius at the beginning of chapter 10? Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send a gospel servant to bring the good news to you. And Peter himself, that witness, is being prepared for the situation because he's in prayer. And that's when God gives a vision to him of the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's purposes. In chapter 12, we see that James and Peter are arrested, and James is killed for his faith, and Peter is next up. But the church is in prayer for Peter, chapter 12, verse 5. And at the very prayer meeting where they are seeking his release, Peter is miraculously rescued and shows up at the prayer meeting. At the beginning of chapter 3, we see Paul and Barnabas are set apart for the global advance of the gospel as the leaders in Antioch give themselves to fasting and prayer. And as as Paul and Barnabas go around and establish churches, it says in chapter 14, 23, that they were appointing elders in all those churches and they were committing them to the Lord through prayer and fasting. Then you have Paul and Silas go to the city of Philippi and they meet some women at a prayer meeting. And that becomes the start of a new church in the city of Philippi. When Paul and Silas are bringing the gospel in Philippi, they are arrested, they're beaten, they're put in jail, and what are we told in Acts 16.25? They're singing hymns, and they're praying, and an earthquake happens, and and the jailer who's holding them gets converted. Okay, I gave you, there's actually more, but I'll, I'll stop there. I'm, I'm trying to make the point to you that the church was devoted to prayer. This is not just a passing remark that is, is mentioned there in Acts 2.42, but we see it throughout the history of the church in the book of Acts and beyond that the way God's kingdom is advancing is through the prayers of his people. And we are gathered here this morning because the earnest prayers of the people of God have prevailed over all the powers of hell and all the schemes of man that have sought to destroy Christ's precious bride for 2,000 years now. The world, in its wisdom, wisdom, and arrogance, have been preparing the obituary for the church for the last 2,000 years. And yet the church just keeps marching on. Uh, Beaten, persecuted, looking weak, but persevering on in the mission. So don't believe the headlines today that the church is dying that Christianity is on the wane, that we're on the wrong side of history. These things are going to be said. They don't change the fact that our Jesus is reigning even now at the right hand of God the Father. And God's triumph will continue on. For 2,000 years, people have been saying there's nothing there in the church. And for 2,000 years, we've just been pressing on. And all the enemies of the church, whether it's King Herod or the Roman Empire or, or bloody Queen Mary and all of her persecutions or Chairman Mao, they're all dead. They're all gone, but the church continues to march on, and so it is for the enemies of the church today. Putin will be dead. Kim Jong-un will be dead. 
every Democrat and every Republican who refuses to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus will be dead, but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The kingdom of God will triumph. The gospel will advance, and it will happen through the prayers of God's people. Prayer is what the people of God do. Because what the people of God are called to do, we can't actually do. And now we're at number two. Now we're at point number two. Why was the church? I've tried to just show you a little bit, and there's a whole lot more that I could have shown you in Acts and beyond the book of Acts about that commitment, that devotion to prayer. But why is it so? And I think this is how I could put it most concisely. Prayer is what the people of God do, because what the people of God are called to do, we can't actually do. Jesus had told the apostles this unmistakably before he had departed from, even before his crucifixion. Do you remember what what Jesus told his apostles when they were gathered there on that final night before he was crucified? In John chapter 15, he told his disciples, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But he said in that same passage, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Pray and it will be done for you. So I I trust that the apostles would have still had those words from that that are recorded for us in John 15. I trust they would have had those words still ringing in their ears when Jesus charged them after his resurrection to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that he had commanded. I think they still would have heard and understood the words. Apart from Jesus, we can't do anything, so we better be praying to him. Think of it in in the terms of the Apostle Paul used of his own commissioning in Acts chapter 26. In Acts 26, Paul recounts before King Agrippa the commissioning that the Lord Jesus had given to him. He said, I'm sending you to open their eyes, the eyes of the Gentiles, that is. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you understand why the Apostle Paul would write like he does to the Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? Who who can turn a sinner from darkness to light? From the power of Satan to God? Could Paul do that? Paul could not do that. I don't know if that was an answer to my question or if that was just some child murmuring, but Paul could not do that, which is why he told people regularly, pray for me. Pray that I'd have boldness. Pray that I'd have clarity. Pray that the word would speed ahead and beyond her because he knew he couldn't do it. And though our mission is not exactly the same, I mean, our mission is the same. We don't have the same role that the apostle Paul had, right? We've not seen the risen Christ. We're not apostles the way Paul was. But our mission to go and bear witness to Jesus and herald the good news that people might be called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of God's kingdom, that's still our mission, right? Can we do that? No. Not by ourselves, we can't. 
Can we raise the spiritually dead? Can we, can we change the leopard spots? Can we reason people out of the bondage that they have and the infatuation that they have with self and with personal autonomy? Can we just reason people out of that? I debated whether I was going to say this, but I, because I don't want to just be politically provocative, but you understand, I mean, there were many, there were many pro-life initiatives on many ballots around the country this past year, uh, week. And around the country at those places where there were opportunities, this, right, this is the first significant election in a world that has removed Roe v. Wade as a binding authoritative verdict in our nation, and around this nation, you know, on the East Coast and on the West Coast and right in the middle of the country, Americans said, we stand for choice. We stand for personal... There, there was a bill on, on the ballot in Montana that was going to protect... This is, a, this is a bill to protect a child who was born alive, who survived an abortion and is now a living baby outside the womb, and this bill was going to give protection so that medical care would need to be given to that baby living outside the womb. The people of the state of Montana said, we don't want that bill. And we have no such protection in the state of New Jersey for such situations either. We're going to just reason people out of the bondage that they have to my choice and my freedom is ultimate and no one will tell me what to do. Can we just convince people? Can we keep a soul in the love of God? Even if we were to make one single convert, could we keep a soul in the love of God? Could we encourage the faint-hearted? Could we give stability and patient endurance to the oppressed? Could we produce in ourselves or in one another the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Could, can we send out laborers into the harvest field of the, to the ends of the earth so that the gospel would spread more? Can we just do that? Can we make that happen? Can we make people hopeful about the immeasurable greatness of God's power exercised toward those who believe? Can we make somebody walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God? Can we present anyone mature in Christ? The answer to all of these questions, if we are looking merely to our own resources, is no, no to all of them. Because the devil is vicious, because our sinful nature is stubborn, because the world is seductive, we are totally impotent to bring about the things that we long for and that we're called to pursue in our own lives and for each other and in this nation and in all the world. And so, beloved, we give ourselves to praying. We pray because the existence of even one Christian or a Christian congregation is miraculous. You understand, when we're talking about Christians, when we're talking about churches, maybe it didn't feel miraculous that you came here today and that we've sung some songs and that we've prayed. But if it didn't seem miraculous to you, that's just because you're not perceiving reality correctly in that particular way. It's a miracle. We're dealing with the supernatural. And we give expression to that. We showcase that to each other and to the world that we know we have nothing, and so we pray. We're constant in prayer. We pray without ceasing. We're to be steadfast in prayer and devoted to prayer. 
Our prayers are intended to be a billboard highlighting our own inadequacy and incompetence, and at the same time, the conviction that we have that our God is both powerful and reliable, so that all the glory for any good thing that we see would go to that fountain of every blessing to whom all praise is due. And that's why the church is devoted to prayer. It's, it's marked the church of our Lord Jesus for 2,000 years now. They were devoted to the prayers. And it's my longing and desire that we would be devoted to it as well, that it would mark us as well. So lastly, briefly, point number three, an exhortation. Because of the great privilege that it is, because of the great power that it possesses, because of our complete and total helplessness to bring about any of the good that we long to see, and because of his bountiful all-sufficiency by which he promises to supply our every need according to his riches in glory in Christ, let it be that Joy Community Fellowship is a congregation that is devoted to prayer together. Let prayer mark the life of the saints in this place. When the whole family comes together, as we do on Sunday morning, we try to pray meaningfully, not, not just as a transition between different parts of the service, but we pray to commune with the God who has so richly and graciously lavished us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, including the blessing of prayer together. And so we, spring, we, we try to be a little bit more deliberate about those prayers today, all kinds of prayers, prayers of praise and prayers of confession and prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of supplication when we bring our need, prayer asking for God's help. That is not a mechanical thing when Dan or somebody else comes up here and asks that God would strengthen us and help us as we hear the word because we cannot hear the word rightly. I will not preach the word faithfully if it's not saturated in prayer. We pray. Oh, if it would be the fruit of some visitors coming among us who, are, who maybe, don't, they, maybe they don't know the Lord, but they hear, they hear praise and they hear confession and they hear supplication and they hear thanksgiving. They say, these people, these people really like talking to their God. It would be a delight if people would recognize that among us. Not just on Sunday mornings when we gather, but that it would be our commitment to pray as we're admonished to and exhorted to in scripture without ceasing. Oh, that, that, that we might see prayer happening before the service has even started. Some of you huddled together praying. After the service, some of you may be responding to God's word by praying. That's why we put that prayer guide in your bulletin every week, that you would be having some ideas about how you can be praying for this congregation and some of the needs around our, in our community and in our world, that we would be using those prayer guides, that we would be uh, members as you have occasion to do, that you would take up a member directory and that you would use that not just as an administrative tool, but as a prayer tool. That you could pray for, I'm just, you're just in the middle, so I'm not picking on you. That you could just pray. Maybe you don't know Rob and Melissa Patterson or how to be praying for them, but you could just pray for them one morning. You wait, put it open your directory. There's Rob and Melissa. Lord, would you just, would you strengthen Rob and Melissa so that together with all the saints, they would have strength to comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know the love that surpasses knowledge that Rob and Melissa, that they might be filled with all of your fullness. Would you do that in Rob and Melissa today? And in that way, you, you love and you serve Rob and Melissa. They're helped. They might not know how they're being helped. You might not know how they're being helped. They're being helped. 
Because they won't be faithful. I'm not taking them. They won't even be faithful to Jesus without God's keeping power, which we're calling on God to do for them. They've got nothing. I've got nothing. That we would pray for each other in our life groups. That our elders' meetings would be saturated in prayer. That our members' meetings would be saturated in prayer. That our student ministries would be saturated in prayer. That, that, that the luncheon that's about to take place, that you would pray. We've planned. We've strategized. We're, but if we don't pray, right, what good could come of us thinking about the needs of the orphan? In, in untold emails and text messages and when, when, the, when the people gather on Saturday mornings to deliver food, that, we would, that, that there would be prayer because nothing good can happen without prayer. And this speaks nothing of that one time that we especially appoint for the purpose of coming together specifically to pray, which is on the first and third Sundays of each month when we bring our needs to our bountiful provider together. Our evening prayer service, 5 p.m., the first and third Sunday of the month. Some of you are devoted to that meeting regularly, and I want to, I'm not going to call you out by name to embarrass you, but thank you for your devotion to prayer in that way. It is an encouragement to me. And for those of you that do not make that meeting a priority, I want to encourage you that we would love to have you there with us. Uh, it's not mandated in scripture, okay? So I'm not looking to make everybody feel guilty who has not been to one of them or you don't come to them regularly. But I do believe that it's a, it's a good and right and wise application of this reality that we're seeing that the church was devoted to prayer, that we would have some time regularly set apart in the life of our church to come together specifically to pray. And that's what we're doing on the first and third Sunday night of the month. It's not a whole lot to look at. It's not particularly flashy. We show up. We, we talk, we share some things that we need to pray for, we bow our heads and we ask God for daily needs and for gospel advance, and then we do it again and again and again, oftentimes without demonstrable results. But I, I remain under the conviction that it is one of the most important things that a church does. And, and, I, and I, I've, I mean, this is not the first time I'm, I'm saying this to you, but I, I think that this Sunday evening prayer meeting has been one of the biggest COVID casualties of our church. We persevered through a whole lot with COVID. Outside, meeting outside for two years practically. The giving was unbelievable. The unity was remarkable. But about 60 or 70 of you just stopped coming to pray. And that's, that's a little strange. Um, I know that not all of you can make it all the time when we come together to pray, but I think more of you can make it more of the time. And I, I want to exhort you to do that. So we put dinner on the calendar for you. Some might call it bribery. I would more like to think of it as encouragement. Sincerely, because it's one, as I have talked to people, it's one of the things that I have heard. Is like, it's right in the middle of 5 to 6 p.m. It's like that's when dinner happens. Okay. Next Sunday, we'll have dinner. We'll pray for an hour-ish, and then we'll go downstairs and we'll have dinner. And maybe, maybe there's too many of us to, to fit downstairs. We'll go over to the Hope House, maybe. We'll see. That's why it says location TBD. Uh, I know child care is another one of those issues. If you, if you would come next Sunday, but you, you can't, it's hard to come because of the absence of child care, please let me know. We can secure child care for you. I do not want that to be an obstacle in us coming together to pray. 
But I would just encourage you to just make, and maybe you already got plans. I don't want you to feel guilty next Sunday if you can't make it. You can't look at Larry because he's going to be mad at me. <laughs> it's, not, it's not it. That's not what it's about. But I, I, I earnestly believe that this is a means of grace that, would, that, would, that we would see much good in our church if more of us were more devoted to that regular twice-a-month gathering to pray. I believe there's inestimable good that God would do in binding us together in love and unity, in us corporately expressing our dependence upon God, in our being strengthened and motivated for the mission of God to go out and evangelize and make disciples. I believe there's great good to be done in us and great glory to, be, to God for us devoting ourselves to prayer in that way. Would you, just, would you consider coming next Sunday evening at 5 and just see if it's not a blessing to your soul? Not that that is the sole grounds. I mean, it could be a good thing for you even if you didn't feel helped, but like, I think you will feel helped too. I do not think you will do your soul damage if you make that twice a month meeting a priority. Thus concludes my little remarks about the evening service. So why don't I just go back and, and, and end where I began? Undoubtedly, among the highest privileges that our Lord Jesus shared with us is the privilege of unhindered, direct access to the throne of God in prayer. And he did not just call us to pray, but he actually, the Lord Jesus, shows us a life fully devoted to prayer. At the beginning of his ministry, what was he doing at the baptism? He was praying. At the end of his ministry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was he doing? He was praying. Throughout his ministry, he was praying. At the transfiguration, he was praying. Even as he hung on the cross bearing our sins, he was praying to his father. He called his disciples. He says, come and, come and pray with me. I need your support. I need your help. Come and pray with me. What did they do? They failed him, right? They fell asleep. But even in their failures, the prayers of our Lord did not. Because he secured the success of their faith and their mission by his prayers. And even now, the Lord Jesus in his resurrected glory ever lives above, seated on his throne of grace to help us in our prayers and in our pleas of weakness. And it's into his glorious image that we have the privilege of growing up to. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's where the Holy Spirit is taking us. So, dear saints, let us look to our head and let us join him in being devoted to prayer together. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for your ear. What an unspeakable privilege it is that we can bring our needs to you. We pray that you would help us to grow. We do thank you for many, many, many expressions of dependence upon you and prayerfulness that does mark the life of this church. And we pray that you would help us to grow more and more. Even as we have thought before about this word devotion, they were devoted. It was a, a persistent obstinance in something. It was an occupying oneself diligently, paying persistent attention to, holding fast to. May you help us, Father, to be so devoted to prayer and to praying together because we need your help and because you've promised to give us all the help that we need through your dear son, Jesus. We pray that you'd work in us what's pleasing in your sight through him, that all glory might go to him. We ask for this in Jesus' name.
Amen.